crime families are wonderful subjects for movies, television shows, and reality TV series, but in reality, a family where everyone is involved in some type of criminal behavior is rare. The terms bad apple and bad seed are common ways to describe a kid who strays away from the norms of the rest of their family. Why does it seem such a mystery when one kid in a family becomes lawless? We give them the bad apple label, but we don't seem as interested as to why a whole family would be criminals. Is it because most of us don't know a crime family, but we all know that one kid that was different from his brothers and sisters? You know, often again I'm asked uh, what I attributed my uh, criminal career, my going sour, on, and naturally your family arises. I think it's more of a mental aberration. I, I know it was in my instance. My dad and mother were just great people, law-abiding, very strict, punish you in a minute. But it was a funny thing that I, out of six children, was the only one that went bad. I never used drugs in my life. I never drank, so I can't blame it on that. I don't really know what triggered that. It really was more of a, of a uh, sort of a bad kid than a criminal career. I started skipping school and fighting, and from that I went to uh, a lot of truancy, then burglary, then car theft, and then into armed robbery. Notwithstanding that I was sent to the Washington State uh, Training School, uh, and from there to, uh, I escaped from that institution, from there to the reformatory at Monroe, and from there to the state prison at Walla Walla. And all of these institutions had marvelous rehabilitation programs. However, I never saw anyone who was rehabilitated because my friends came right up the line with me. Each adventure begins with a step. Each step takes you closer to a destination. Sometimes you arrive at a destination that may intrigue you, captivate you, feed your innermost hunger. But one step past that destination may incarcerate you. My name is Jeff Bargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of the High Adventure Podcast. This is Episode 2, so if you've missed Episode 1, I encourage you to go back and get up to speed on this story. If you're new to the High Adventure Podcast, I hope you'll go back and listen to the previous seasons. I think you might enjoy some of those stories. One of the things that has me flip-flopping all the time is when people ask, and also when a podcast platform asks, what is your podcast about, and what genre or category are you in? I honestly don't know how to answer that question. As I mentioned in the past, I, I have a criteria, and up to this point, I've tried to follow that criteria. Of course, that might change in future seasons, but right now, there are four things that I think about when I'm looking at a story. One, is it compelling? Two, does it have adventure? Three, is there an airplane? And number four, is there some level of crime? And beyond being a compelling story, the rest of the criteria are just details. 
As I started season two in the middle of the pandemic and was wrestling with this category and genre question, I realized that I've been answering that question throughout my career as I hopscotch between mediums of film, television, web series, and podcasting, and with wildly different stories. But I wouldn't say we're a true crime podcast or an outdoor adventure podcast or an extreme sports podcast. I like to think I'm telling campfire stories in a little bit of a longer format, but they don't have campfire stories in the category list. So I appreciate all who've wandered through the podcast desert and found us just sitting here in the sand waiting for you. I hope you'll accept our offer of a story that you won't hear on any other show and that you'll come back with your friends. Season 3, I admit, was a bit of an experiment, and I heard from some of you that that was not your favorite season. And I can respect that, but outside of that season, what I'm really doing here is producing audio documentaries. The stories I'm telling all had been at one time documentary films I wanted to make. But the complexities of pandemics and of financing and of time commitments, it just wasn't going to happen. So I seem to found another way to tell those stories, and I've wanted to tell these stories for a long time. We don't have a robust marketing effort, and really any marketing effort at all. You, the listeners, have found this show somehow, and I'm grateful if you've hung in there with me going into our fourth season. I want to encourage you to go to our website and our show notes to check out our sponsors and affiliates. And don't forget our feature documentary, Assault in El Capitan, that's available on streaming sites everywhere. And last but not least, our audiobook, Everest Alone, Maurice Wilson's 1934 journey to be the first person to stand on the summit. Everest Alone is available on our website and through most audiobook publishers. You can reach us on all the social media platforms, but the easiest way is probably just go to our website, accidentalproductions.net, and send us a comment. We also post these episodes on both our YouTube and Vimeo channels, and both these channels are under our company name of Accidental Productions. Please subscribe to both of these channels if you get a chance. All this subscribing and reviewing really helps the algorithms to expand the listener base and to help grow our show. We're at that stage where we have to grow or go. These shows are a significant amount of work in research and writing and producing, and I'm a believer that one thing should lead to the next. And the next thing for us is to expand our show lineup that will include more categories and genre-specific shows. So coming in 2021, we'll launch our new podcast network and expand our show offerings and hopefully reach out into more specific categories and genres. Some of these shows will be video-based, but all the shows will be distributed as audio podcast as well. I'll have titles, show descriptions, and previews available very soon. Hey, maybe you out there have a podcast or idea for a podcast. Shoot us a message through our website and maybe we can work together. Glenn Williams was 12 years old when he was given an indeterminate sentence to the Washington State Training School for Boys in Chehalis, Washington. Handcuffed and shackled, young Glenn was put on a bus. The bus was outfitted with wooden benches for seats and crisscrossed through Washington State for six hours picking up more handcuffed and shackled boys until pulling into the Washington State Training School around three o'clock in the afternoon. Glenn was depressed on arriving, not because he was seemingly entering some 
Oliver Twist-type story, but because he was sure he could escape from the bus at the midday rest stop. He was shocked to find that as the bus pulled into the parking lot of a small diner midway through their trip, there were several armed police officers waiting for them. They were there to stop young criminals like Glenn from darting off from his captors. The handcuffs and shackles were certainly going to be an obstacle, but the armed police presence made an escape attempt impossible. I know I keep saying this, but Glenn was only 12 years old at the time. Now, aside from the destination, the idea of riding six hours handcuffed and shackled in a 1920s-era bus with wooden benches would, for me, have stopped my life of crime right there and right then. But not for Glenn. Upon arrival, the new inmates were hustled to a barber shop where their head was shaved by other juvenile inmates. They were forced to take a cold shower and were issued clothes and assigned bunks in a dormitory-style barracks. Homesickness hit Glenn hard almost immediately. He had an uneasy first night that was beset by nightmares. It was both terrifying and welcome when, at 5.30 a.m., the bugler blew out the wake-up alarm. No matter how bad today is, he thought, at least I'm awake and won't have nightmares. But the days were going to be far worse than any of the nights. According to an essay by Jennifer Ott on HistoryLink.org, the Washington State Reform School opened in 1891 for youth ages 8 to 18 who had committed crimes or had been orphaned. The state legislature mandated that all students, in their words, quote, will be taught and trained in morality, temperance, and frugality. And they shall also be instructed in the different trades and callings of the two sexes, as far as possible in the scope of the institution. End quote. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that paragraph. First of all, I want to backtrack a bit. They opened a reform school, but it was also going to be a house for orphans. What had the orphans done to be forced to live with juvenile criminals? And the age range, 8 to 18? It screams out of criminal and child abuse. There is no way young kids should be housed with 18-year-old adults. And from the time of its opening until 1915, this place was co-ed. Boys and girls were housed together. Again, juvenile male criminals housed with female orphans. What could possibly go wrong in that scenario? I don't think I need to go into any details about what could have gone on in that institution, but I'm sure your own mind can take you to some pretty dark places. The instructional mandate is interesting as well. To be taught morality, temperance, and frugality. Basically, do the right thing, don't drink, and save your money. I wonder how that instructional plan worked out for them. They then had a mandate that inmates were to be instructed in the different trades and callings. Callings? This is clearly meant for the girls who were called to cook, clean, and sew, thereby achieving a woman's calling of making a home for a man. The premise that this institution was founded on was clearly a failure of enormous proportions, because by 1907, the name was changed to the Washington State Training School, and in 1913, the girls were moved out and into their own institution. In 1915, there were 190 boys living at the school, but 21 of them were orphans whose parents had died or were abandoned by their parents. 
Let's all speculate how successful the orphans were in this institution. What are the chances that they went in as orphans and came out as criminals? According to Glenn, this school offered a master class in crime. As Glenn tells it, as new arrivals were integrated into the general population, they were subjected to verbal and physical abuse by both inmates and guards. Glenn wrote that in his wildest imagination, he would never have thought such conditions could exist. Without going into gory detail, he recounted that they were reduced to animalism of the most barbaric kind. Remember, Glenn's 12 years old at the time, and others in the institution are simply there because they were orphans. They hadn't committed any crime. Glenn tried to write home about the treatment that was going on in the reformatory, but his letters were censored by the staff, and he was told if he sent out letters that caused agitation, he would be shown what treatment they could really dish out. Glenn now knew that he was on his own. He recognized and was later grateful that he actually had parents that could come and visit if they chose. Like any predator, the authorities of the Washington State Training School were very good at finding those who were vulnerable to attack. The superintendent, who was basically the warden of the institution, had the nickname of Father. Not because he was a priest, but because of his paternal manner. He seemed kind and thoughtful and let all the boys know that he was there for them if they needed to talk or, or ask for anything. Like all the new boys at the school, Glenn was brought to the superintendent's office for a talk when he arrived. The superintendent asked Glenn's name, which Glenn thought was strange since the superintendent had his file open on his desk. Glenn remembered that the superintendent asked him to come around to the side of the desk, and then he ordered him to drop his pants and his underwear, which. Glenn did. Even this early in his stay, he had seen what happens to boys that don't do what they're told. The beatings of the so-called incorrigible boys were done in front of all the kids as a form of intimidation. Embarrassed, Glenn stood there naked from the waist down as the superintendent stood up and walked around looking Glenn over. The superintendent didn't touch him nor make any comments. Later, when Glenn told a dorm mate what had happened, he was told that the superintendent did that with every boy that came in, and that if the kid was from Washington State and had parents that might visit, then the superintendent would leave the boy alone. But if the kid was from out of state, or had parents who were never going to come, or if the boy was an orphan, then, in Glenn's words, the superintendent would make vile demands of the boy's body. To me, this is horrifying. Predators put in charge of boys with no one and no place to turn to for help. The idea that a young kid was orphaned in the state of Washington essentially said to them, you lost your parents? Well, we'll give you a place to live, but you'll be sharing that place with criminals and sexual predators. You're welcome. I wonder how the lives of those orphans turned out. How many of them became criminals or worse, how many of them became predators? We talked earlier about Glenn's dislike of uniforms and authority. Obviously, that's going to be a tough road to follow in a place like this. The superintendent of the school had an accomplice, a man the kids knew as Pop. He was a guard, and he was the one who administered the sanctioned beatings at the school. Of course, the unsanctioned beatings would take place at any time and any place by anyone. The sanctioned beatings were given by Pop with a large leather strap he had nicknamed Marianne. 
Glenn remembered that he'd lived in fear of Marianne, having been whipped by switches and other objects, but never, as he said, brutalized by such an awesome-looking weapon. He lived in fear of breaking the rules, but that, as you can imagine, if you followed this story, was not going to last long. Glenn's inability to get along was becoming a problem. He was, again, fighting a lot with other kids and later with guards. At the tender age of 12, he was on the guards' watch list. Guards were instructed to watch Glenn closely and administer punishment as seen fit. Glenn became intimately involved with Marianne on many occasions, having lost count on how many times he was told to strip naked and bend over a barrel as he was beaten with the long, wide, and thick leather strap. Glenn said he couldn't remember how many times he'd gone to bed and was forced to lay face down because of the injuries to his backside. Incarceration was a situation that seemed to close in quickly on Glenn and pushed all his buttons. Authorities in uniforms who were sadistic bullies was a combination that even at 12 years old Glenn could not tolerate. The most severe punishment Glenn endured was after Glenn's rage got the better of him. After being pushed one step too far, he lashed out at a guard, breaking the guard's nose. Without a doubt, a date with Marianne was in Glenn's very near future. Glenn recalled that he'd lost count of how many times he was hit with Marianne, his naked body bent over a barrel with the entire school witnessing the whipping as a warning to the other kids who had even thought of stepping out of line. At some point, Glenn remembers that he must have fainted from the pain. The next thing he remembered was that he woke up in the hospital ward handcuffed to the bed. After a day in the hospital ward, it was determined that Glenn was well enough to receive the remainder of his punishment. The next piece of punishment was called by the institution Time in the Circle. Glenn was forced to carry a 25-pound bar across his shoulders and walk in a predetermined circle that was called Circle City. Out of each hour, he was permitted to sit down for 15 minutes. Glenn walked in that circle carrying that 25-pound bar for the prescribed sentence of 15 days. Still hurting from the whipping, Glenn walked that circle hour after hour, day after day, as his body healed. He started to gain strength, and at the end of that 15 days, Glenn was a physically fit 12-year-old powerhouse. Solidifying his feelings for uniforms and authority, he was more determined than ever to become a criminal. Nothing stopped him now from disobeying the rules. He was bothered less and less with each successive beating. It happened so frequently that Glenn picked up the nickname Leatherass from the other kids. The name Leatherass was given to inmates as an honor for having taken a full measure of beating without crying out in any way. Glenn had spent a year in the Washington State Training School when he was finally released. He was relieved to be going home, and his family was thrilled to have him home. His parents were sure the experience at the school had taught Glenn a lesson or two about rules and laws and obedience. It wasn't long before the honeymoon period wore off. Glenn knew as soon as he returned home to the normal life that things were different. He was different. He was feeling that restlessness that had got him into so much trouble in the past and decided he would test himself. He decided that he wanted to burglarize one more house or business just to see if he'd lost his touch. This is where it's hard to understand the mentality of a criminal. Glenn wanted to see if he'd lost his touch. Now, he's assuming that at any point he had any touch at all. Up to this point, he'd been caught for everything he'd done. 
His mother found out about the burglaries and turned him in. The police caught him stealing coal. I'm curious to know what touch Glenn thought he'd ever had. Glenn was soon back burglarizing houses and businesses, having robbed half a dozen places before deciding it was time to move his criminal enterprise up a notch. He decided that the best place to go further his career was Chicago. That's the place his criminal heroes seemed to spend time. If they were there, then it must be the place for a young apprentice to go. It was 1929. Glenn was 14. One of Glenn's great pleasures was riding horses. He came up with a plan that would get him enough money to get a ticket to Chicago. Convincing a couple friends that this would be a great adventure, Glenn and the other two went to a riding academy late one night and took three of their best horses. They saddled them up and took off for Ellensburg, Washington, where they were sure they would be able to get a good price for these horses. The other boys could go where they wanted, but Glenn was heading for Chicago. As they rode into Ellensburg, they saw the sign for the annual Ellensburg Rodeo. The three decided it would be great fun to enter the rodeo and maybe even make a little prize money. While filling out the entry forms for the contest, one of the boys quickly ran up to Glenn and pointed out a number of police cars who were pulling into the rodeo grounds. There was no question why they were there, and it wasn't hard to figure out who had called the police. When three young teenagers come out of nowhere riding up on expensive horses, that's bound to raise some suspicions, and it's a good chance that when the horses are stolen, the word spreads to ranches and towns to be on the lookout for three people with horses that seem to be a bit out of place. So once again, Glenn is in the middle of a serious crime, but seemingly hasn't seen any flaw in his plan. But at 14 years old, he's still in a steep learning curve. Does practice make perfect? Is it true that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at something? Well, at this point, Glenn has spent at least 10,000 hours thinking about crime. It'll be a bit longer before it starts to pay off. As the police slowly moved in, first by car and then on foot, they seemed to be forming a perimeter. After all, the kids were on horseback, and that's a fairly formidable method of transportation and not easy to follow if the kids headed into the wooded rural areas. Glenn and his friends knew, however, that the word was out about the three boys on horseback and that they probably couldn't get far. So what's the move? Surrender? Try to move through the crowd and disappear on foot? Moving through the parking area, Glenn began looking into cars. It wasn't long before he found what he thought was the perfect car. Glenn found a police car with the ignition still on. The cops were out walking the grounds looking for the boys. The three quickly piled in and took off in the police car. Stealing a police car is one thing, but stealing a car when you don't know how to drive? That's a different kind of arrogance. This was in the days before police had radio contact with their cars and with other police departments. The boys drove until dark and then hid the car in a wooded area until they came up with a plan. The only lucky break was the car was basically an unmarked police car. It had lights and a siren, but lacked any of the normal patrol car markings. This was rural Washington state, and the government plates were the only thing that marked this car as official. And it was quite a plan. The plan was to now drive around and pull over cars on rural roads and rob the drivers. After robbing the driver, the boys planned to disable the victim's car and 
That would hopefully give them a head start on the next group of police that would soon be on their tail. Glenn felt great. This finally felt like real crime and the type that seasoned criminals might do in Chicago. The boys felt like true traveling criminals. They had a car, guns that they'd found in the car when they stole it, and money after robbing various people along the road was not an issue. With guns and transportation, they could rob and steal anything they wanted along the way, wherever the way was going to be. It wasn't long before the boys were caught, and it was determined that they would be returned to Wenatchee to face charges. Without question, Glenn had been the leader of this little gang. The other boys were given probation, and Glenn admitted to the authorities that he'd convinced the boys to come with him, and that they were not responsible for any of the crimes. It had been all his idea. Sitting in jail, Glenn had begun to plan his escape, and his father came to visit him in what would become the most heartfelt and heartbreaking conversation he would ever have with his father. But it would be half a century before Glenn understood how hard a conversation this must have been for his father. Up to this point, Glenn's parents had been blindly loyal to their son. But his behavior was taking a toll not only on his father and mother, but on his brothers and sisters. They'd been shamed, and they were humiliated, and they were now referred to as the brothers and sisters of that little criminal, Glenn Williams. With shoulders sagging from shame and a voice shattered with fear and disappointment, Glenn's father spoke quietly and calmly to his young son. Quote, Son, you're at the point in your life where you will receive no more opportunities. I am financially and emotionally incapable of going much further in your camp. Your mother is devastated. No member in our family can hold their head up. We are filled with shame, humiliation, and grief. This is the final time you can expect a cooperation from us. I'm going to appeal to the prosecuting attorney to drop the charges and have you return to the training school as a parole violator. I pray to God that I will be successful. End quote. Glenn's father was successful, and Glenn was sent back to the Washington State Training School for Boys. There was little question what was waiting for him the day he returned to the training school. Glenn was brought into the large room with Pop and Marianne waiting for him. The entire population of the school was there, too. They had been gathered to witness a whipping as a message of what happens if you don't straighten up and stay out of trouble. It had become customary to give returning boys a severe whipping. Glenn walked in, and without saying a word, he stripped off his clothes and bent over the barrel. He said nothing during the whipping. That whipping seemed to go on forever. When it was over, Glenn pulled up his pants. Pop, who was himself exhausted and holding a bloody Marianne, met Glenn's eyes that were locked on his. Leatherass was back. But not for long. Glenn spent every waking hour thinking of escape, and after another inmate was brought back to the school after an escape attempt, Glenn questioned him intensely. The boy warned Glenn that it wasn't worth it. Aside from losing all the good behavior time he'd earned, and after a long and painful date with Marianne, the boy still had to do ten days walking Circle City. The warnings didn't do much, but did solidify Glenn's desire to escape. 
So in the coming weeks, Glenn formulated a plan and was ready to be done with the Washington State Training School forever. One foggy evening, when the boys were lined up to go into the gym after dinner, Glenn, without reason, punched the kid standing next to him. Kids scattered and guards came running to what looked like a fight. When they got there, one kid was on the ground and Glenn was running off into the fog and headed for the forest that surrounded the school. Even in these days, some 30 years after the school had opened, there were no fences. The idea and practice of torture and assault on anyone who tried to escape was a significant deterrent, unless your name was Nathan Glenn Williams. Spending a couple days moving near but not on roads, Glenn was putting some distance between himself and the school. Knowing that authorities rarely actively search for escaped inmates, he was feeling fairly comfortable. Searching for escapees takes manpower, and there simply weren't enough personnel available to go looking for Glenn. There was a theory, and it was correct most of the time, that the escapees would eventually catch themselves by committing another crime and just trying to survive, or they'd be seen and reported by local citizens. Walking a back road on day three of his escape, a car pulled up alongside and offered Glenn a ride. He happily jumped in the car, and the driver told him he was headed for Weed, which was a small town in Northern California. That sounded good to Glenn. It was two states away, and if he got that far, he was pretty sure he'd be out for good. The driver of the car admitted that he'd heard about the escape on the radio, and the broadcast had given a description of Glenn, and there was a $50 reward for information. Now, that's over $750 in today's dollars. That's not an insignificant amount, and given that the Depression was in its beginning stages, and money was tight for everyone. The driver told Glenn he was not interested in the reward, and that they had similar opinions of authorities. The driver was also generous, paying for meals and motels along the drive. One night, Glenn was jolted awake at the feeling of his underwear being pulled down. Clearly, the driver felt it was time for payment. Glenn jumped up, and with all the rage he's had for the police, he beat the man to a bloody mess. The man, beaten and frightened, barricaded himself in the bathroom of the motel room. He began begging Glenn to let him go. Glenn, always looking for an opportunity, told the man that he wanted $10 and a ride to the nearest bus stop or he himself would call authorities and report what the man tried to do. The man agreed, and Glenn could now add kidnapping, extortion, and assault to his record of robbery, horse theft, car theft, and jail escapee. He was about to turn 15. Glenn took the bus to Seattle, where he found himself lost in the large city. Burglarizing houses and businesses in the city was a much different thing than in Wenatchee, where he roamed the streets after dark alone and unnoticed. In Seattle, it was hard to evaluate targets, and even harder to find places to hide and sell the things he would steal. Like a kid who was homesick at summer camp, Glenn eventually hitchhiked home to Wenatchee. Arriving back home, he knocked on the door and waited, not knowing if he was welcome. When his little sister opened the door, she stood speechless. His mother came quickly and threw her arms around him, but his father was less enthusiastic, but not less emotional. He was heartbroken that his son had yet again refused to complete the sentence that he'd arranged for him. He told Glenn that things had not changed and that he would be taking him to the police station the next morning for a return to the training school. Glenn pleaded with his father and tried to explain the brutality of the place and what he would be facing when he returned. But his father was a heartbroken man. 
He'd done everything he could for his son, and at each turn Glenn had refused to change his lifestyle. He couldn't let Glenn's behavior control the family and prohibit the other children from getting the attention they deserved. Glenn tried to explain what happened when he escaped the training school and the attempted assault by the guy who'd given him a ride, but the news had been broadcast back to Wenatchee a couple days before Glenn arrived. The news story was about a teenager of Wenatchee who had beaten and robbed a traveler and stole his car and was on the run. That certainly was quite a story, and it would have been bolstered by Glenn's criminal resume, but as Glenn tried to tell his father the truth, the fabricated story actually sounded more like Glenn than the truth did. It's hard to convince someone of the truth when the lies sound more believable and in fact more plausible. So instead of waiting for his father to escort him back to the police and a date with Marianne, Glenn wasn't sure he could or even would survive a date with Marianne after having humiliated the guards the way he did. So instead of waiting for his father to escort him back to the police, Glenn was off again. He walked through the town in the darkness, wondering what to do next. While walking by the National Guard armory, he remembered how he loved watching the men doing drills and wondered what happened to all those guns when the armory closed at night. Stopping by an old friend's house, Glenn quickly outlined his plan. They could rob the armory, steal a car, and head off to Yakima, which would get them both out of this small, dead-end town. A few hours later, they were in the armory, rummaging around for the cache of weapons that they were sure were in there. After gathering what they thought would be a good collection, some of which would be used for robberies and some they could sell, they were ready to start their adventure. They just needed a car. But as they came out the back door, they were blinded by beams of light that were sent directly into their eyes. There they were, and there they were, waiting for them. The police quickly arrested them, Officer Butts himself taking Glenn into custody. That was yet another humiliation for Glenn and his family. Officer Butts was a close friend and a lifelong friend of Glenn's father. Once again, he realized that he'd hurt his parents far worse than Marianne had ever hurt him. With no defense, Glenn pled guilty, but was curious to learn that the only charge against him was burglary. There was, for some reason, no mention of the robbery of the National Guard armory. Glenn then learned that the robbing of the armory was a federal matter, and that he was in court to answer for the local charges, so this was a bit anxiety-producing. One set of charges had been accounted for. Would the feds bring further charges later? That was a big cloud that hung over Glenn and his chance of freedom down the road. Standing in front of the judge with his head down, partly in shame and partly as an act of reverence, the judge sentenced Glenn to three to five years in the state reformatory at Monroe, Washington. The reformatory was no kid's training school. Monroe was a real prison with real adult inmates and predators who'd committed every crime imaginable. Built in 1910, Monroe was and still is the second largest and second oldest prison in Washington state. Glenn's mother broke down and was inconsolable as Glenn was handcuffed and taken from the courtroom. Putting Glenn in an adult prison was the choice of the judge, but at this point Glenn's criminal record and his potential for violence offered strong evidence that he was operating as a mature criminal and not just a mischievous juvenile. Upon walking into the cell block that very first day, the other inmates were a bit taken aback by Glenn's age, with one inmate even calling out to the guard, What in the hell are you doing putting a kid in here? And the guard yelled back, 
This kid could teach you a few things about crimes. But Glenn knew these were not people who burglarized houses and stole trinkets. These were grown men who stole, robbed, kidnapped, and killed for profit. But aside from murder, Glenn had committed every one of these crimes himself by the time he was 15. But physically he knew he was outmatched. And the fear of abuse was overwhelming. But at the same time, he was going to be housed with people who knew more about crime than anyone he'd ever met. So there was an opportunity here to elevate his crime game. In our next episode, Glenn learns a lot about crime and survival at Monroe. And he gets one step closer to his goal of being a famous criminal. Thank you for listening. Now here's the mushrooms with Hard to Fly, and we'll see you next time on our way to the rock. Yeah.